feel great after. I want to take a nap. Chinese food is just like... That MSG? Dude. It raises your heart rate up and then it fucking drops like 20 minutes later. Like, <laughs> MSG yeah. is good though. I mean, I yeah. like it. It's just salt. Super salt. It makes food, it makes salt. food taste so... Oh, I have a bucket of Lowry's. Uh, we're recording. What? <laughs> it's going to open with you saying, <laughs> I got a bucket of Lowry's. Yeah. We're not sponsored by them. Let's reach out. This episode brought to you by Lowry's. Season salt. Throw it on some fries. Throw it on some fries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Uh, so this is Elliot. Yeah, yeah. And Andy's doing the jingle to our Lowry season salt commercial. It's Chappelle show. That's trademarked. Yeah, we're we're gonna get, we're gonna get a cease and desist order uh, order real soon, like real soon. Woohoo! Best not bring your kids. <laughs> this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. We're goofing around here today. We're a podcast. Um, if you listen to podcasts and you accidentally found this, you're probably using Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. So good job on that. If you want to look for us elsewhere, you can find us on Patreon. Um, if you're enjoying the content, what we do here, and ha- like to help us cover the costs of hosting some of these podcast episodes. We don't explicitly offer any traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything right now. Knowledge is for everything. Knowledge- oh my God. Knowledge is everything. Knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we goof around and critique some ecological subject matters. And we've also put up clips of this entire series on the Patreon as well. So if you want to hear some stuff from all the episodes before and this one, go check it out. On top of this content, we've got some stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm and trying to put the theories that we babble about into practice in real life. And um, play with some poultry as well. And maybe sh- maybe shear some sheep shear coming some up. Sheep. We're gonna do some fun stuff. Slaughter some turkeys. Oh, he's talking about killing stuff. Some guinea fowl. Oh man. Tomatoes. Killing some tomatoes. Can we at least give him like straight market? Do you want to give him like a sporting chance, like a fifty-fifty shot? Like throw the tomato and see if it can escape before I get to it to. No, like it. with the fowl, like let him oh. go. Skeet him, skeet him out of the air. <laughs> if we miss, it's like well. Yeah. Don't play with your food, guys. It's rude. All right. <laughs> Have some respect. Have some respect. Seriously. We're we're not a bunch of savages. I well Sponsored by Lowry's. <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna get sued by Chappelle. Mm, fuck good. We're gonna get sued by Chappelle Show and Netflix. <laughs> Anyways, we're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. And if this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode of this series and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content, or at least at the beginning of this mini-series, and catching up. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Greg Newby, who is the CEO and Executive Director of Project Gutenberg since 2000. So we chat a bit with him about the concept, knowledge is for everyone, and Hell yeah. open access and uh, open sourced and building horizontal lines of power, driving power from uh, a volunteer force. And how those relationships between organizations is something that we can model in different areas as we try to challenge some of the the unwavering power of the state in terms of its ability to define things like copyright. Dr. Newby had been a part of this project in some capacity since the 90s and has a really good grasp of where Project Gutenberg started and where it's going into the future and its role in terms of being an open source, publicly accessible, and in keeping the ownership of the contents that they create as purely owned by the public in every sense of the word. So hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation, and we'll be including links to some of the subjects and areas he recommends to check out in the notes. Dr. Newby, thanks so much to come on and talk about where you work, Project Gutenberg. Having grown up with the rise of the internet, I remember in the 90s, the world seeming endless as uh, access to things like Project Gutenberg became available. And it became really synonymous with this concept of the free internet, as we all hopefully envisioned back in the 90s. So can you tell me a little bit about Project Gutenberg for people that aren't familiar and um, how you got involved with it? 
Sure. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm glad that you're interested to hear more about Project Gutenberg and, and how it came about. There's a, a sort of a long backstory, and interestingly, we're just uh, this year in 2021 at the 50th birthday, the 50th anniversary of when Michael Hart first created an ebook. That was the United States Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1971. Since then, it went from something that was awkward and difficult and no one really knew what was going on, as you can imagine back uh, in those days, to something that's very standard. You know, ebooks are how books happen nowadays, whether you're in college or, or, or on a train or something like that, you know, uh, just for enjoyment. Ebooks are, are a big part of life and uh, very much accepted. But you might imagine that there were many years where Michael and uh, eventually I were um, trying to make the case for why ebooks versus other types of um, uh, media, you know, printed printed books. So what happened was my own journey was something that really started in about 1986 or 1987 when I was at uh, college, and I got a emailed copy of what was called um, the Millennium Fulcrum edition of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Uh, this uh, you now know is number 11. You know, we number all of our books, uh, session numbers. This, this turned out to be number 11 in Project Gutenberg. But I got an email copy before I even heard of Project Gutenberg. Now as a computer guy, you know, I grew up with computers like, like we probably all did and a lot of the podcast listeners did. Uh, yeah, I was a computer guy. I wasn't computer science, but I was using computers for communication, all kinds of things. And um, uh, and I immediately said, oh, I get it. We're, we're seeing a book. And of course, it's an email, which is not the best way to read a full-length book. But you're seeing a book in electronic form. And I get that this is going to be not only a fantastic way to experience a book, but also it lets you do some stuff that you couldn't do with the printed books. For example, to quickly search. You know, So if you want to find all, you know, you want to find the part about the walrus in the book, you know, you can just uh, type slash walrus or control F walrus or whatever it is, and you'll, and you'll be able to find that probably more quickly and easily than you could. And obviously you can do uh, other things that you can't do that easily with a printed book, such as make a derivative work. So if you have something that's in the public domain uh, in the US, which is, you know, what we deal with, you can say, all right, I want to do a mashup. I want to. I want to take some of the artwork. I want to extract paragraphs and quote. Uh, you know, I want to use it for some project. I'm sorry. I'll uh, try to dim my phone while I'm sitting here. But the um, uh, the ability to do these things beyond reading is something that uh, you know I thought about immediately, and of course, continue to think about since then. So my project Gutenberg journey really continued um, without having met Michael Hart or without knowing much about Project Gutenberg per se um, until the early 90s when I took a faculty position, my first faculty job at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, got a newspaper clipping sometime in the fall of that year, fall of 1991, that highlighted Michael Hart. It was uh, an interview with the inventor of the ebook uh, in the local newspaper. And um, I called him up. I said, hey, I'm a new faculty member. I'm involved in all this uh, IT stuff. I'm in the School of Informational Library Science. So I'm you know, someone that's sympathetic about uh, books in general. And uh, I saw your article and I'm interested to, to talk. So we met, we became friends and the rest is basically history. So that was 1991. I became subsequently more involved. I produced a book, number 52 was the first one that I did, which is Descartes, uh, Discourse on Reason. I also contributed to a number of other uh, books at the time. I was helping with like the FTP site and stuff like that. This is before web, by the way, right? There's no Mosaic or HTTP or, you know, this is all pre-web, no Windows 95, you know, uh, to, which was the first major operating system that made it easy to get on the internet. So, you know, all prior to that, but, uh, but became more and more involved. And then in uh, the year 2000 or two, I think it was year 2000, we became more formal as an organization because Project Gutenberg had kind of been on the coattails of a couple of different colleges and universities over the years, which could take donations. And Michael was a very frugal fellow. He uh, needed minimum income, but still uh, it was nice to have this organizational home where people could send tax-deductible donations, and we can apply for grants and stuff like that. So we formalized in the year 2000, and I became the first uh, director and CEO of the Project Gutenberg Literary Archive Foundation, PGLAF, which is basically uh, just a very small, simple 501c3 corporation that you know, oversees 
the work of Project Gutenberg. So that was sort of my journey all the way to, to 2000s. Um, and so obviously I've been very involved. I was very much a co-creator during that period with uh, Michael and other, a lot of other people, countless volunteers that have been involved over the years and have kept with it since then. And so we are now uh, just around 65,000 electronic books. So this is just about everything you've ever heard of that's prior to uh, copyright. You know, that, that, that's, that's, I mean, that uh, for which copyright has expired. So stuff from 1925 or earlier, just about anything you, you've heard of or thought about or thought to read or whatever is, uh, is in there. Not 100%, but we're, we're doing pretty well. And uh, we're still growing at a rate of about 200 new books per month. So the organization is, uh, is very healthy. We have still very many volunteers. The bulk of the volunteers actually work with another organization that I'm part of called Distributed Proofreaders. This is an organization that does crowdsourcing for all of the mechanical pieces, you know, proofreading and, and sometimes typing, but, you know, proofreading, fixing, formatting, converting to HTML, all that stuff. Um, so that's the major source for Project Gutenberg eBooks. But as you can imagine, uh, you know, and knowing, knowing that, you know something about the history of technology and how things have evolved we have you know we've surfed that wave as things change from ftp sites to websites and and now we're not just doing html and plain text we're also making books in epub and kindle formats stuff like that so we're not the fanciest organization in the world it's still a nonprofit. everything is free everything is you know very minimal we don't have you know ads we're not supported by you know um analytics and selling cookies and, uh, you know, uh, and access to our readers, we're very much devoted to simply providing the content. And what can you do with that content? If you're in the U.S., anything you want. If you're outside of the U.S., some of the stuff is still copyrighted and might be limited. But within the U.S., it's essentially free for all the purposes I mentioned earlier. Read it, of course. Share it. Give it away. Print it extract, uh, uh, you know, put it into your computer program or, or performance software and do some fancy neat stuff with it, make use of the artwork. It's intended to be uh, not only unlimited redistribution, but completely unencumbered, you know, stuff that really truly is free. And just like you said at the beginning, this is what we understood, what Michael and I understood. And I was uh, not as early an internet user as he was but very much an early internet user. And we thought that the whole purpose was freedom of information and sharing and giving stuff away and whatnot. Now it's not so much that, right? It's, uh, uh, you know, you could use some other words to describe it, but we're still doing all that. You know, we're still very much focused on uh, freedom, very much focused on volunteerism, very much focused on all of the content being uh, available for essentially any use you could imagine. So you brought up this idea of copyright, how the relationship between Project Gutenberg and the, the well, copyright in general and kind of how the laws have changed over the past mm -hmm. few decades and kind of what, I guess, you envision versus what you would like to see happen in terms of copyright and kind mm -hmm. of what kind of if there is a middle ground between those those areas that I'm sure are much different. Yeah, Michael Hart characterized to me that he was an unwilling expert on copyright. And I simply, be, I've, I've similarly uh, become the same. I'm an unwilling expert on copyright, especially the expiry, uh, you know, the copyright term expiry when things enter the public domain. And we know, but I'll say it anyway, that the purpose of copyright as laid down in the United States Constitution and historically all the way back to the Statute of Anne when copyright was first invented in England and other places after then, is to encourage creation, is to encourage um, people that write stuff and create stuff, whether they're painting or singing or whatever it is, but in our case, they're mostly dealing with written word, uh, to keep doing that because they have a temporary monopoly on the ability to sell that item. That's, that's the idea, to encourage creation of, uh, of the arts and, and, and so forth. Copyright terms have expanded over the years, including 14 separate expansions during the 20th century, to uh, now in the United States be 95 years after publication. Uh, also, for some, some things more recent, um, the death of the author matters, but usually it's after publication, or for corporate works, 120 years after publication. These don't serve anybody very well, and they aren't very consistent with the founder's intention of encouraging the creative arts, because of course, if you publish something 95 years later, you're dead. Right. You know, no one, no one, no one, unless you published it when you were extremely young or, you know, something like that. Uh, so, so there's no, there's no encouragement of creativity that's going on. It's simply benefiting 
the companies and the estates of the people for the items that are in press, you know, still generating revenue. The quantity of items that are still generating revenue is very, very small on the order of a percent or a couple of percent. So even then, the copyright is essentially serving to limit what you can do to lock up items, which were uh, from quite a long time ago, so that a very small number of those items can generate revenues for usually a very small number of usually very large companies. So it's all broken, right? Uh, we, probably, we probably agree with that and it's excessive. With Project Gutenberg, we had a hiatus of 20 years. The Copyright Term Extension Act uh, of 1998 meant that for 20 years, we were stuck at 1921 as our cutoff for the public domain. In other words, no copyrights expired for 20 years. They finally started expiring again just a few years ago. So one thing that's nice about Project Gutenberg is every year in the United States, there's more stuff that enters the public domain because its copyright term, even with its extended 95-year term, has now has now expired. So that's good. You know, we still get we still get to grow the collection with recent materials. For example, uh, this year we published uh, *The Great Gatsby*, one of the uh, you know big titles that that's uh, you know uh, mainstream, very recognizable. Last year we published uh, Kiel Gilbrand's uh, *The Prophet*, again very mainstream, very uh, very much um, popular favorite. And the thing that's interesting is these are still in print. You know, there are still people that are selling them, and they're in the public domain. And from our point of view. This is the way it should be for, for a lot of materials because the benefit of literature, you know, being able to share books, being able to use books, being able to uh, distribute them, put them in schools, et cetera, these far outweigh the benefits to those very few people that are still profiting from the works. And in fact, as things like Great Gatsby and, and Cahill Gilbrun's The Prophet demonstrate, they're still able to sell that stuff. You know, they're, they're, you can still go into a bookstore and plunk down $12.99 or whatever it is and get a print book. Or you can still go to the Amazon store and pay a couple dollars to get a, a copy on your Kindle. So the fact that something in the public domain doesn't actually cease the ability to monetize uh, those works for the people that want to monetize it. So yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, to answer your question, I think co copyright term extension is uh, broken. We did fight it. When the 1998 extension came around, uh, that didn't go anywhere. We um, sometimes give input to, uh, for example, Canada, where they're looking at extensions based on the new NAFTA and saying that's not that's not consistent with the cultural benefits that uh, you know that are the reason why copyright was set up in the first place. Um, but at the same point, point, that's the way it is, right? That's uh, we have to work within those those regulations. Project Gutenberg is very much a above board, highly visible site. You know, we follow copyright law very, very diligently. We um, also guide people that are in other countries that they need to make sure stuff is free to use where they are. Cause you know, it's a website, people can get to the website from wherever, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that they can do anything with the content. There might be some restrictions based on where, uh, on where they are. So yeah, so copyright is, is, a, is a fact of life that we, um, we deal with as best we can. I'll mention one, one special thing about copyright that I'm very happy with, which is um, we learned, uh, it's not a secret or anything, we uh, found out that most items that needed renewal back when there was a renewal requirement for copyright weren't renewed. The Library of Congress keeps records on this stuff. You know, it used to be way back when you used to have to actually send a physical copy of a book to the Library of Congress and fill out some forms in order for it to be copyrighted. Later on, you had to just put like, you know, a circle C or, or uh, you know, copyright statement at the beginning of a book. You had these formalities. One of the formalities in the United States was renewal. So historically, you would get the first term, and that goes way back to the founders when the term was 14 years, but then by the 1900s, the term was 28 years. And then if you wanted a second term of copyright protection, hey, no big deal. You just have to fill out a form, right? You don't have to pay anything. You just have to fill out a form and file it with the Library of Congress to get renewal. Well, it turns out most people don't do that even after 28 years because Maybe they're dead. Maybe they weren't making any money from it. Maybe they um, wanted it to be freely available. Most likely it was out of print. Uh, and maybe um, maybe they weren't aware. They forgot. You know, there's all these reasons why renewals didn't occur. And about 85 to 90 percent in any given year were not renewed. Renewals were required up until items published in 1964. 
or through 1964. So what that means for Project Gutenberg is if we can do research that demonstrate that no renewal occurred for an item, then we uh, can cons- confirm that that's in the public domain in the United States and add it to the collection. So we actually have a ton of stuff, um, thousands of items. A lot of them are short stories uh, from magazines, you know, serials, but also some of them are books that were uh, not renewed. And so we were experts in copyright enough to make sure that A, we're following copyright very closely, but also to know that we are benefiting from those those couple of situations where uh, copyright doesn't apply. And there are others as well, just to mention very briefly, uh, stuff that's published by the United States government is not copyrighted. So we have, for example, some park guides and some army manuals and some other interesting stuff that uh, is, is much more recent than um, you know, 1925. I'm interested to have you on because one of the things that we talk about at the beginning of each episode is the fact that knowledge is for everyone. And I feel like the copyright law really encompasses this idea that when you put knowledge together into the written word, it becomes, you know, your labor, your work. And mm-hmm. there should be some ownership over that. But at some point, that collective knowledge that you use to make your work still is for everybody, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much. I mean, I mean, we're all part of society. I mean, we don't, you can't write a book. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't even learn to write unless you're part of society, right? I mean, how do you learn this stuff? And how do you how do you get what stories to tell? And of course, there's a whole other issue of, of how stories often build on previous mm-hmm. stories. You know, people do retelling of, of uh, you know, tales going back to antiquity sometimes. So the ability to create is something that comes from your, your existence in society. The ability to write literature, of course, comes from being literate. And how do you become literate? Well, you read, right? You, you read and you learn to write and, and, and you know, whether it's a formal schooling or, or not, you need literary works in order to become literate. So it's all, it's all self-perpetuating. It's a self-feeding situation. And uh, clearly at a point, once you've created something that benefited from what came before, what you've created should then benefit the, those that come after you. And that's really the issue with copyright term extensions is that that cycle becomes so long, you know, a 95 year cycle means that uh, I'm limited in my ability to build on stuff that was from, you know, in this case, the late 1920s or 30s, you know, so I can't do something that builds on, uh, I don't know, you know, Gone with the Wind or, or, or a Mickey Mouse cartoon or something like that without needing to worry about copyright infringement. So it's a, that excessive term is a stifling on that wonderful cycle, which has been so beneficial otherwise. Yeah, I think authors stand on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. And we're trying to balance this issue between uh, appropriately providing the, the wages for their labor versus primarily in these instances, I think it's investment groups and uh, publishing firms and things like that, that are the ones that are really benefiting from these extensive copyright laws mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, taking advantage of those conditions. Very much so. And I might add, uh, you, it's easy to find statistics that most authors don't make a living writing. Uh, there, you know, there are some that do, right? And we know, we know a lot of those are household names, but most authors uh, don't. Um, they, they, they do it out of love or they do it out of uh, ambition and, and other motivating factors, but they're not making a living. And, and even if the thing goes into print, uh, it goes out of print or they're not making much money from it anyway, not enough to get by. So, you know, so the, the idea that there are, um, uh, you know, big ticket items, you know, the, the things that turn into the big movies and, and the, the, the bestsellers and stuff like that, those are the vast minority. But unfortunately, the law serves those very well and doesn't really do anything for the minority. In fact, to the contrary, uh, you know, we get all the time people that say, hey, I wrote this book. Maybe they wrote it this year. Maybe they wrote it 20 years ago. And they say, can you help me distribute it? Because it's not making me any money. And I just want to make it freely available to the, um, you know, to the world because that was what motivated me in the first place. Uh, so copyright is an impediment to that because in order, even for the author, a lot of times we get approached by an author that says, hey, you know, I wrote this. Maybe it was an academic press. Maybe it was something I wrote when I was a little younger. Um, the publisher owns the rights. I don't own the rights to that, which is pretty typical for, for early authors. The publisher owns the rights. Oh, and by the way, the publisher went out of business or has been bought and sold five times since then. And so this becomes um, not orphaned because it hasn't been abandoned by the, the there's a, orphaned works as a separate thing. 
but it becomes sort of locked, you know, it's locked away because you can't get to the point of confirming or granting to the public domain. So this is, you know, this is all sad. By the way, Project Gutenberg does have a self-publishing portal by one of our affiliates. It's not, not something that I run directly, but um, those people that do own the rights to a book, or maybe it's a book that they wrote that's, that's never been commercially published, uh, they can get that into a Project Gutenberg site. And we have a couple tens of thousands of, uh, of contributions like that as well. Awesome. So I, I used to, uh, a long time ago, like you, I uh, used to be a professor and did a lot of that academic writing, uh, which, as I'm sure you know, is its own circle of hell in terms of ownership and access and things like that. I'm just kind of curious of your thoughts of how an organization like Project Gutenberg could play in terms of especially academic knowledge that sometimes is so vital in terms of pushing public discourse forward on various subject matters, whether it's if we were to look at like vaccine safety, you know, that that's kind of relevant right now when people should be able to have public access to that kind of information so that we can dispel some of the myths that exist on various scientific areas. Yeah, we're, uh, so we're very much in support of, of uh, freedom across the board. And uh, the idea that that a journal, you know, you sign away your, your ownership when you submit a, a uh, work to a academic journal. A lot of the times, not all the time now. And open publishing is is you know much more prevalent, but that's pretty recent. So journal articles going back to 1925 are probably copyrighted by someone that you can't find. Uh, you know, and if it's if it's by a journal that was defunct or a journal that was then bought and acquired, it was a, a professional association, academic association that's changed names. I mean, it can be really hard. To understand, you know, what what you can do with with this stuff. So yeah, lock, it serves to lock away knowledge, which and and of course the sad thing, which is part of the rationale for open access, is a lot of times this was paid for with public money, right? So if someone gets a grant as a as a faculty member, they write some journal articles that are related to the grant, and suddenly they're owned by you know fill in the blank, and not available to the uh, to the public. So it's yeah that that whole thing is broken. But in, uh, I mean it's. Open access is is a huge part of the solution, but a lot of it is broken, and a lot of it is is unfortunately uh, locked away for what you might as well call permanent. You know, as good as permanent. You know, ninety five years, yeah, uh, or or more. So what we're doing at Project Gutenberg is really we focus just on uh, the literary works. You know, essentially the books and maybe short stories and stuff like that that are in the public domain in the U.S. So journals, academic stuff is not something that we would be very good at. Uh, like, for example, we don't have good ability to search for, uh, to hold data. Like, you know, when you have a table in a journal article, having that searchable and retrievable as a table, you know, as a, as a, uh, a set of numbers or a formula would be really important. And we would not be good at that. We're just, that's just not our thing. Uh, there's other places that are doing a better job of that. We do have an affiliate. So we're encouraging, but we're not doing it. We do have an affiliate. Again, the one that runs the self-publishing portal, self.gutenberg.org is the World Library Foundation. They are doing a huge um, conglomeration open access journal collection uh, with something like 20 million different journal articles titles. So, so, so we are, we're sort of directly involved with them. We share a, a mutual board member and we're sort of coordinated with them, but it's not something Project Gutenberg, the mothership is able to be good at. And we're sort of focusing after experimenting, we experimented with everything, you know, experimented with uh, movies and, and audio books, all kinds of things. And finally, we, we realized that the world has moved on and there are other folks that are much better at, for example, um, streaming audio than we're going to be. Instead, we're going to focus just on the literary. What we're going to—it's an evolution that occurred over time, you know, because we did want to do everything. And back in the in the '90s, if you were a self-published author, where were you going to go, right? You didn't have a lot of choices. And Project Gutenberg was really happy to be part of getting those types of works online. We have some copyrighted stuff that's in our top 100. I mean, our our, top, our first 100, you know, a number of copyrighted works in addition to a lot of other experimental. Stuff. But yeah, you know, like I said, ultimately, uh, let's focus on what we're good at, and also where our volunteers are most interested, and that's in those older, older literary works. I, I want to focus a little bit on this idea of open sourced information. Uh, if you think it is a, a climate change issue, because I brought up the idea mm -hmm. of you know scientific literature being accessible to the public, but I feel like information asymmetry has become weaponized by uh, politicians mm -hmm. and the media, and uh, I, it's a distraction from information that once you do see it, it's very easy to see 
the way science points and things like that, but mm-hmm. it's become behind a paywall and it, it's hugely problematic. So I'm yeah. curious if you think mm-hmm. uh, that is a climate change issue. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, how how can you fix things if you don't have full access to the world's knowledge of what what the status is and what's known about uh, mitigations and you know what's been tried in the past? I mean. We'd we'd like to shift the problem to become a problem of information processing capacity and effective search, and maybe you need artificial intelligence to make sense out of a huge, you know, corpus of uh, of knowledge. Um, that would be a better problem to have than access or uneven access to information. Um, I experienced this personally. I, uh, historically, I was a faculty member for a number of years. Obviously, a student before then, and we you know we have access to all the databases on campus. And uh, these days, I, I don't have a faculty role, so I, I reach that paywall, you know, every time I want to read a uh, an article. And and it's ridiculous when, for example, I'm a member. I've been a member for decades of IEEE and ACM, you know, professional associations. They publish hundreds and hundreds of journals, and if I want to get access to that, I need to pay extra for my membership or pay a la carte. So it's like even even being on the inside isn't enough. They still want you to to pay and pay to have that access. So as a faculty member, of course, hopefully the academic library is, is giving me a lot of what I need, but, but faculty members are not by far the only people that are equipped or working to solve the world's problems. There's a lot of other information out there. And those paywalls are preventative towards what I mentioned earlier, which is the ability to aggregate search and stuff like that. So if you can't find easily you know, journal articles or, or other works that are um, pointing you towards useful directions or maybe steering you away from, you know, not so useful directions for your uh, uh, particular area of research, um, then you're not going to know about it. And you're either going to waste time, you know, uh, reproducing something that you could have just read about, or or you maybe are even going to go down, you know, a multi-year pathway that uh, could have been saved by, you know, being able to leverage better the knowledge of the world. So yeah, uh, of course, again, uh, you know, Project Gutenberg doesn't do this very directly, right? You know, we're, we're all about the free information, but we're not really working in that space. Sure. But in terms of um, sentiments, not only is our sentiment aligned with open access to information, all of our motiv- motivations from earlier days were very much aligned with that. And, and I'll just mention one, one example of this. Michael was um, very concerned about revisionism. He was also concerned about media bias. He was uh, really quite an expert in these topics. And one of the things we did for years, uh, which we've we've stopped now because the versions are still online uh, now, but for years we would publish the uh, CIA World Factbook. We also worked with encyclopedias and some other reference works. And the reason why we wanted to digitize those and make those available was because a new one would come out every year that would change the opinions, like as you can imagine, in the CIA World Factbook, it has this information about all the countries of the world. And like from year to year, a country would go from being a favored country to being a less favored country to being a pariah country. You know, and sometimes that was policy, sometimes it's because things changed. But you want to be able to go back and look at what the status was earlier, just like it's valuable to look at an earlier encyclopedia. So in some sense, it's almost the, um, uh, it's like having that change history visible in Wikipedia. You know, it's like you get what's there, but you can also see what, what was there uh, earlier. So we were very big on, on trying, to, trying to make sure that those important reference works were available going into the past, not just, not just the contemporary knowledge. So that's an example of where Project Gutenberg was actually very active in um, uh, maintaining ongoing access to materials that otherwise would actually have disappeared or have been you know, superseded, but it's very difficult to find the earlier version. I'm really curious about the fact that you guys still have such a large platform of volunteers that are involved with what you guys are doing. And I'm curious about the way Project Gutenberg has successfully organized people online for mass action as a way to create meaningful change. Uh, and you know what, yeah. what that looks like internally, and uh, how you keep that ball rolling in 2021. Yeah, that's a great question. And and these days, the the main place for volunteers I mentioned earlier is distributed proofreaders. That's pgdp.net, Project Gutenberg Distributed Proofreaders.net. And this is this was very innovative. We it's actually just having its uh, about to have its 20th anniversary of uh, of existence. So this was a pretty early crowdsourcing activity. And the idea was that uh, people could show up, they could spend 
probably less than half an hour a day, proofread a few pages and then come back tomorrow. So proofread a page, a couple of pages a day. And before you know it, some number of people do that and you've completed a whole book, right? And then it goes through the next chain of, of there's some quality control and you have to merge it all together and worry about hyphenation and HTML markup and all kinds of stuff like that. But, um, but the crowdsourcing notion really opened up the accessibility of volunteers because to do a book solo, as you can imagine, you might've done some of this work on your own is actually a lot of work. You know, you, to take a printed book and whether you're scanning it or typing it to go from that printed book to a fully functional digital book involves a lot of work, actually a lot of decisions and some expertise because you have to figure out how to do the HTML markup and uh, how to deal with things like hyphens and page headers and, and all these other things that you don't normally think about when you're reading a book. So. Um, so we still have some solo producers. We still have some people that do that. And, and they're wonderful, of course. Most of the work, though, is done by uh, distributed proofreaders. And they've had, um, between the two organizations, we figure we've had uh, easily uh, 10,000, probably tens of thousands of volunteers over the years. And you could include, for example, people that report an error, you know, someone that finds a problem in a book and, 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 and emails in to say, or said, submits a ticket to say, hey, you know, um, I think maybe you have a typo here. Maybe you can fix so yeah, we've been very successful at volunteers. And, and the, the, the uh, reason for success with distributed proofreaders is that it's simple, very easy to get involved. And you know, there's things that become more difficult as you work your way through from a basic proofreader to someone that's doing this formatting, but very low barrier to entry. And that's key. And also distributed proofreaders, there's a lot of choice to work on. So if you're into children's books, uh, maybe you're uh, from somewhere overseas or you speak a different language, you can choose something in a different language, you know, language other than English. Uh, maybe you're into mathematics. I mean, we have all these little specialties that are in flight, you know, because multiple books are, are working at, at any given time. So I really credit distributed proofreaders with having the model, which has um, worked to entice far larger number of volunteers than would have occurred if we were only working with solo producers, because just the barrier to, to get a book through as a single producer is uh, very high. You know, it's just a challenging to do. Now, all that said, the thing that's interesting, and, and this, is, this is probably not exactly what you want to hear, but the thing that's interesting about volunteer retainment is being neutral to their desires. So I don't, I don't tell, I mean, I'll tell anyone the story that I just told you about uh, CIA World Factbook and, and, and the story of Alice's Ventures in Wonderland and express some of my choices of books that I've worked on. It's not like that's a secret. However, I'm not going to tell you what book to work on. And what Michael was uh, very, very firm on and we've retained to the day is if you want to do work to digitize a book, you choose the book. You choose your interests. You choose how to go about digitization. We have, there's some rules. There's some, you know, we want to make sure HTML is valid and passes spell check and stuff. But, uh, and images aren't too big. I mean, I mean, we have a lot of guidelines there, but there's a lot of latitude in uh, the choices that you make. So for example, if you go way back, these days, mostly we're doing things that are closer to a straight transcription. But in the earlier days, we had people that were combining multiple editions of, uh, of books because something's changed over time, uh, you know, like for fiction, or they were making decisions about spelling. They're like, okay, I have a book and it's British spelling, but I want to make that American spelling. And Michael and then me and everyone else were like, hey, do it. You know, you're doing the work. You're, you're putting the effort into this. It's in the public domain, so you can do what you want with it. And we're happy to have that uh, contribution. So that was the thing that was interesting was we didn't, we don't approach, we didn't and we don't approach volunteer recruitment and retention with expressing a whole lot of values beyond the basics. We're here to digitize literature and give it away in an unencumbered fashion. If someone comes and they say, we're really into these old Westerns, work on them. Someone else comes along and says, boy, I really hate those old Westerns. <laughs> you know, I really want to work on reference works because I think those are going to have enduring value. And, uh, and that's what I always wanted when I was in school or whatever. Work on those reference works. You know, people, we have one, we have so much uh, of these science fiction pulp stories because we have one volunteer that's really, really active at finding out which ones from the old pulp magazines, you know, like Galaxy and Astounding and stuff like that, uh, were not renewed and getting those into the distributed proofreaders process. And by the way, they're usually, you know, a couple dozen pages. So they're actually pretty quick productions as well. So we have thousands of works in the science fiction area, not because I like science fiction, which I do, not because I encouraged um, working with the pulps, 
uh, which maybe I did, but but because someone chose someone chose to do that, right? Someone actually did the work. So so being um, being very neutral on the values is important. If we said that um, we're really only about that quality literature, we really want, only want to have the, the top fiction books of the year, then that would eliminate a whole bunch of other wonderful stuff that people to work on. So we try to keep away from the values. And in fact, if you look at the collection development policy at gutenberg.net, which was updated just in the last year or so, it was really just written in the last two years. We never had one previously. It um, references something called the freedom to read principle, which was or principles, which was developed by the American Library Association and a number of other partners. This is essentially an anti-censorship missive. What it says is, look, there's some terrible literature out there. Uh, there's, you know, these days we think a lot about, um, well, we had the Dr. Seuss controversy just recently, but we think a lot about works from long time ago that are no longer aligned with contemporary values. They're no longer acceptable. I don't know if they were acceptable then, but you know that the, uh, the story of uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn is a great one, right? Uh, you know, Huckleberry Finn and the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. To Project Gutenberg's mind, the question is not, should you read that? Should that be read in schools? Should that be um, on your bookshelf? We don't care about that. That's not what we're here for. Make your own decision. What we care about is that the literature is available so that people can make that choice. And we made a very firm statement in our collection development policy that said, look, if someone wants to digitize it and it meets our collection development, criteria, you know, public domain and well formatted and, you know, reasonably spell checked and stuff like that. We're not going to deny it because it disagrees with our values or is going to offend somebody or something like that. That's a really very, very firm uh, statement to make. And, and that, as I said, it came out of the American Library Association and others. So, you know, one of these days, uh, you know, Hitler's Mein Kampf is going to become available. And if someone wants to digitize it in German, we'll take it, you know, uh, as, as an example. You know, I mean, so there's stuff that's, you know, deeply offensive, absolutely is stuff that we wish had never been written. And, and you know, all that bad stuff we can, we can say. But the freedom to read principle says that we're going to make that available rather than making a decision to censor isn't quite the right word, right? Because it's, we're not, we're not making that broad a decision, but making the, the, a decision based on our values as to whether or not that'll be acquired in the collection. And I can understand how that's counter to, you know, the mission statement that you have placed out. But I do understand the sentiment and the stance on it, because in my opinion, it, it does feel like it's the right thing to do. It's a tough thing to do. I mean, I mean, we're it's tough to do. Right? It's tough to defend sometimes. Right. The thing, but, but the, um, you know, but the thing is that. You know, I per and I'll get I'll, I'll I'll even tell you the story. This isn't uh, very well publicized, uh, but I'll tell you the story of of why we wrote this collection development policy a couple of years ago. And the answer is we had some porn, we had some stuff that was that was you know truly deeply nothing but pornography. You know, from it was it was public domain. You know, so it was old stuff. Uh, wasn't it wasn't images. You know, but it was absolutely pornography. And I made a decision based on a number of complaints to remove it. And uh, my colleagues at Distributed Proofreader said, well, where do you draw the line? Just because you don't like something and just because you're getting complaints, does that mean that you're going to remove it? And so I went through iterations of collection development policy you know, that more or less started with, we'll take anything but porn. No, we'll take anything but porn and hate speech, right? We'll take anything but those two. And, you know, but those are noble purposes and they might serve well for someone running a bookstore or a library, or of course, deciding what they're going to read or what their kids are going to read. Nothing wrong with those. But in practice, there's no firm line between one thing and the other thing. And in practice, you know, of course, what's hate speech? That's yeah, a perpetual you know, type of issue. But also in practice, um, who's going to decide? You know, what kind of procedure are you going to use to decide? And, and we realize, again, like I said before, it's not that we couldn't make a decision necessarily. We could come up with like an editorial board type of thing, but that we're not well equipped to make a decision. And so we decided uh, better. We decided better to go with the freedom to read, and better to go with the open collection policy under you know under our requirements than to uh, try to make value judgments. And I'll, I'll also, by the way, part of what we did at that time was we said, okay, we're going to formalize what I mentioned earlier. No more audiobooks. No more movies. No more self-published works. Um, we're not really dealing with uh, scientific literature. You know, let's just uh, let's just 
focus on what we've demonstrated we're quite good at, which is the uh, the older literary works that were published uh, that were previously published. So I have to ask, uh, you have this kind of setup where volunteers are focused on what they're interested in. Does that seem to be meeting the demands of what you guys have for? I'm sure you guys kind of have a list of some sort of like these are some of the books that are coming into out of copyright. We want to get them covered. Or, you know, there's uh, different er subject areas that you want to have this many, you know, books released on each subject area. Does it seem like you're still meeting all of those goals? and Or does it seem like it's very skewed because of breeder interests that are volunteering? It's not very skewed. There's, there's, there's plenty of stuff to choose from. And thanks to the efforts of Google Books, Internet Archive, and some of the national libraries, something called Gallica in the UK, for example, there's tons of scans online. And so what we typically do with distributed proofreaders is we don't go to the library, get a physical book or buy a book and scan it ourselves. We go and get the scans that are online. And so there's millions of books that are in the public domain in the United States that are scanned already. So we don't have an issue with uh, running out of content. We sometimes have issues with volunteer interests. So for example, someone might come and say, hey, I'm really interested in working on works in Hungarian and uh, you know, historical works, uh, great literature, great stories, et cetera. And there isn't anyone that's uh, you know, fluent in the language or interested in working on that. And so what happened in that case was the person or people interested in Hungarian put together a little team. And suddenly there's Team Hungarian or Team Hungary in distributed proofreaders, and they're looking for materials and they're digitizing stuff. But that was something that had to be done organically. Like, like I couldn't, I couldn't have done that. No one in distributed proofreaders at the time could have said, okay, here's how we're going to support your interests in that particular type of work. You know, so the volunteers sometimes have to do a little, you know, self-organization. But in terms of the general, like feeding the beast, uh, there's no shortage. And, um, there's only so many like great famous works to go around, like I mentioned a few earlier, right? There's only so many top top books or books that are even still in print all these years later. But there's a lot of other stuff that was uh, published, you know, in any given year. And we also have backlog. It's not like we did everything from 1924 and now we're working on 1925. You know, there's plenty of stuff that goes back uh, into earlier years. Some stuff, by the way, I mentioned is very hard and challenging, so we haven't done everything. That you might think because of the um, challenges involved, uh, Newton's Principia Mathematica is a good example, published in the 1600s, but very, very hard to digitize because um, uh, of all the mathematical equations and stuff like that. But uh, even from uh, more recent you know, years into the early 1900s, there's stuff that we haven't done yet. So yeah, no, no shortage other than in particular uh, specialty areas. And again, that's, that's uh, addressed when there's a critical mass. Uh, we have critical mass for children's books, for a lot of the mathematics I've mentioned, for uh, light literature. We have people that are working on reference works. We also have people that are interested in particular uh, themes. So you have some people interested in religion. You have some people interested in uh, agriculture. You have some people interested in national parks, you know, uh, travelogues, things like this. So, so the, the collection grows unevenly based on the interests of those that are willing to do the work, which, again, is the design. That's uh, that's a design. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of this is driven by self-organization. The volunteers lead the conversation in a lot of ways with obviously some very limited guidance. Uh, so it's very much a, a bottom-up organization in that sense. And that seems yeah. to be a component in uh, making something so vast, expansive, and decentralized work in practice. Yeah, we take requests, by the way, too. So, so you know, if, if someone learns of a, of a book or an author that we should have and is eligible, that doesn't mean that, I mean, of course, we, we invite them to join distributed proofreaders whenever I get a request like this, but we'll also forward the request to distributed proofreaders. And then there's usually volunteers that are all too happy to put that into the queue if they can find a good scan set, you know, for, for work. And that happens constantly. So it's not like, um, it's, it's not like we don't create books that are requested without having someone do the labor. You know, sure. we're happy to receive requests. So uh, I'm kind of curious as to the role of Project Gutenberg in, I guess, the modern era where you can go on Amazon and there's a bunch of free Kindle books that are out of copyright and things like that. Like, how, how does uh, Project Gutenberg stay competitive and relevant, I guess, in, in that arena? Well, I think, I think we're happy to do our own thing. You know, the, um, the marketplace is 
is certainly not entirely bad. I mean, I mean, among other things, you know, why are we talking about eBooks? Because not because Project Gutenberg has been around for 50 years, but because you can buy a Kindle and a Nook and 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 you're getting your you know college textbooks as eBooks and so forth. So yeah, Michael invented this stuff, but uh, but it, he didn't he did what he could, but he's not by any re, any stretch the reason why eBooks are the thing now. That why eBooks are so popular. So so we have no complaint against that healthy ecosystem. And uh, and if someone wants to buy a book or if it's easier for them to get the book through, you know, if they have a Kindle and it's easier to get it through the built-in storefront or they have a Nook or one of these other devices and they want to use the built-in storefront to get that book. You know, we're, we're, our purpose is, is, uh, is the literary purpose more than the you get the book from us purpose. Right. And then that was always a design, you know, let's take, take this book, remove the Project Gutenberg name and which is trademarked. And we have a whole separate licensing thing for that. Uh, but the book is in the public domain. Do with as you will. You can resell it. That's right. So you're happy to be an option for a place for people to come and get this. And I guess that would make Amazon and any other supplier sort of shopping for convenience rather than paying for the content. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Yes, I mean, I mean, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far. I mean, I would rather people weren't paying for it, and I would much rather that the Kindle, in particular, because Amazon is terrible at locking people into their store, that that the Kindle in particular, which is the most popular device, made it a lot easier to just download something from a website and get it onto your device. You know, that's uh, one of the most frequent support requests we get is people that are frustrated because they found our book on our website and they can't figure out how to get it onto their you know, Kindle or other device, you know, because it's not that easy, by the way, if, if you ever tried this, it's easy with the Kindle storefront. It's easy to buy the same thing, you know, Pride and Prejudice. You want to buy Pride and Prejudice, maybe it's only three bucks because it's an older item, easy enough to get. But if you want to get the Project Gutenberg Pride and Prejudice, same exact thing, same quality, et cetera, in the Kindle format or the EPUB format, you got to do, you know, backflips to uh, figure out how to do that. So yeah, I'm not, uh, I don't want to make it sound like, uh, like that's good. And also what happens when you get that pride and prejudice from Kindle? Can you share that? Can you print it? Can you forward it? You know, is it like a book on your shelf or, or a book from Project Gutenberg that you can forward it to everyone else in your family? They can all have their own copy, right? Their own digital copy. Answer is no, none of that because it's locked in. It's locked down with the digital rights uh, management software. So. Um, so I think that's unfortunate, and it's something that disempowers the readers. And and of course I'm against that. At the same time, they're getting Pride and Prejudice for two ninety nine on an ebook reader. Right. That's great. You know, read that sucker. Yeah. You know, enjoy <laughs> it. Go and get another book. You know, figure out how to get these free books, whether it's from Gutenberg or somewhere else. And uh, you know, as I'm a voracious reader myself, and I'm from my point of view, I'm very happy with the fact that I can read some stuff on my computer. I can read some some stuff on my on my tablet. You know, my reader and, uh, and I can get something in print. Sometimes I'm paying for it. Sometimes it's free. Sometimes it's in the public domain. Sometimes it's not, right? We're about freedom of access to information. We're about supporting literacy. And how do you support literacy through literature, through reading materials? As I said earlier, what's one of the benefits of literacy opportunity, right? You're going to have challenges getting opportunity without literacy. So anything that puts literature to people's hands, I'm in favor of. At the same time, I'm able to poke at some of these particular mechanisms and say, hey, that's, you know, we wish it were a little bit easier. We wish it were free instead of uh, at cost. We wish that we could do all these other wonderful things like sharing, making derivative works, et cetera. One of the things I've noticed over the past year since COVID has taken over is um, obviously everyone's working from home and streaming everything and all that good stuff. One of the stats I saw recently about um, like the problems of streaming and things like that, that streaming like a, a movie on Netflix is equivalent of running a refrigerator for a year or, you know, and, you know, the, the intensive energy use for streaming. I don't I'm, I, that doesn't sound right to me, but it seems to be something I've seen mm -hmm. multiple times. Uh, I'm curious yeah. about the role of things like open source in terms of making data more efficient, more accessible, and um, its role in things like fossil fuel wind downs and, you know, this idea of like mm -hmm. working from home and all of these other components of how that right. that kind of open source access to information can kind of be a component of that process. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of choices that individuals can make and a lot of choices that organizations make and how information is provided and maintained. The thing that's nice about 
what Project Gutenberg does is that the data can be at rest. So you can, you're encouraged to put a copy on your you know, cell phone or computer or whatever it is, thumb drive, any of that. And at that point, it's not going to consume much of any electricity. You know, there's a, the download that occurred, but then it's just, it's just sitting there. It's just at rest. Contrast that to a model like the digital delivery of movie model, where every time you watch it, you have to download it again or, you know, start out from where you, where you were or something like that. So that online infrastructure needs to persist in order to maintain the ability to view on demand. So, um, so obviously the persistent online storage of digital materials is going to be more energy intensive than having uh, data at rest. I think the Project Gutenberg story is also about uh, saving trees, right? I mean, you're not, you're not getting this on paper anymore, or, or maybe you could print it, I suppose, but you, know, you don't need to get an ebook on paper. You can, you can have it be on your, um, uh, on your computer or your, your you know, tablet or whatever it is uh, that you're already using. So there's a bigger story there that, that I think doesn't directly pertain to ebooks as much. I mean, the bigger story is about the global energy usage for data centers and also specialty activities in data centers, not just the networking, but also things like the Bitcoin mining and, and uh, you know, video on demand. And there's, there's, there's a tremendous uh, energy usage there. Some of it, of course, is offsetting stuff that would have otherwise been printed or maybe shipped physically. There, there is another side of the equation there, but the tremendous energy usage is a, uh, is a factor. With Project Gutenberg, we're, what we're doing is actually very lightweight. We have uh, a very small number of servers, but of course, we're not, we're not Amazon. You know, we're not serving tens of millions of simultaneous customers. We don't need all that stuff. So it's sort of unfair to compare our little website to a big operation like Amazon or, or Netflix. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a definitely a green story about uh, ebooks, and part of that green story with Project Gutenberg in particular is the encouragement to actually just keep your own copy data at rest. You know, obviously you can put it on a CD or DVD if you still have those. It's really a thumb drive, so that it's not consuming any electricity and yet it's available or minimal, right? But then it's available. So yeah, so I think there's there's a story there, but I think the story of ebooks is related to fighting climate change is is you know kind of a small part of the puzzle compared to um, so many other activities, and even in the digital realm compared to what's going on with uh, energy use by data centers. By the way, for what it's worth, uh, I have an MBA in sustainable business in addition to a PhD in information transfer, and I've and I've worked in supercomputing for decades. So, um, so, so I've actually studied this in depth, looked at like the total energy burden of computation and storage, and it's kind of shocking. The thing that I want to remind you of is that not only do things use electricity, and of course that electricity might be from coal or other dirty sources, but people often forget the embedded energy in these devices. So the fact that I'm on a laptop here, I have a, a you know, an ebook reader, um, yeah, okay, maybe those aren't using very much energy, but what about the materials that went into those? Where were those mined? What was the human impact of the mines? What was the carbon impact of the mines? What was the water usage to make the metals and uh, you know, and the chips and whatnot that went into that device? And then of course, how long are you gonna use that before you you know, before you uh, you need a new one. The you know, life cycle of a laptop might only be a few years. Right, and that's been in the news a lot recently. Yeah, so I think there's there's a gradual awakening. It's it's very hard to account for that because of the way the supply global supply chain works. You know, things are not um, uh, that easy to back compute uh, for a consumer. They're they're almost impossible. You can sort of estimate, but even for the businesses that are producing them, it's tough to back compute. But I think there there needs to be an awakening that more of an awakening that the energy use, embedded energy, materials, human costs, you know, for uh, mining and things like that are very much a part of the equation for getting something digital. So yeah, you might, you, you know, you might be uh, saving some trees, which is great by using an e-reader instead of a printed book. But what went into making that e-reader? And by the way, what are you going to do when you're done with that after three or four or five years? Maybe you drop it. Maybe it's just time to replace it. Um, it's going to end up probably in a landfill or maybe even a recycling situation where uh, some some poisons and some other energy use goes back into the environment. So this uh, this is something that I think is a, a big part of the question that, again, ebooks, you know, we do what we can, but we're a relatively small part of that equation. Yeah, I'd, I'd seen your background, so I was really curious about how 
uh, your IT background kind of played into this very different component where, yes, there is tech involved in Project Gutenberg, but it's not really a driving force. Yeah, and we did, you know, there is an element of um, planning for the apocalypse uh, that went into the idea of Project Gutenberg. It's like everyone should have a library in a form, you know, a digital form, right? But a form that doesn't require an internet, doesn't require, you know, a lot of uh, external infrastructure. And we still encourage that. It's like, you know, you, you can, you can, fit all of the uh, plain text versions, you know, the smaller versions on, uh, on a thumb drive, you know, with no problem, right? And so we really encourage people to have their own copy, which again, by the way, it's part of what I, I, I'm not fond of in, um, in a subscription model that you have for things like Netflix and, and uh, even for, for a lot of software, but certainly for, for a lot of your content, right? Do you own the book that you bought via fill in the blank store? The answer is no. If you look at the small print, all you got was a temporary license to use the book for limited purposes. And if that company goes away or you lose your sign in or you buy a new device or you change, you move to another country, suddenly you'll discover that you don't have what you thought you owned. And so Project Gutenberg, of course, is all about making it really easy for our content. Obviously, we can't solve all the other content that's not public domain that we don't have access to, but at least for our content that you can have that copy perpetually, uh, you know, with you as opposed to um, uh, only on a rental temporary basis. And I think that's maybe one of my misconceptions that I had about the project was I thought um, it was strictly around archiving the books in one place for people to go and get them. But it sounds like it's really about the sharing and they really want you really want people to um, get their own copy and, and share it with as many people as they can and also keep a copy, you know, offline or if they have favorites, they can print them and keep them in their own personal library. Like you said, everybody should have their own yeah. library. We've, we've worked hard to make it as easy as possible. Um, and still, you know, it still can be non-trivially challenging to download something from the internet and store it someplace, you know, give it a good name and keep track of it and stuff. I mean, we have a lot of, uh, of course, of course, for many people that's bread and butter and they just, they do it with no problem. But we find many people are challenged by those processes and we try to guide them as much as we can. So, you know, it doesn't mean it's trivially easy, but it, but there's no impediments. There's no barrier other than knowledge and, you know, uh, accesses of software and whatnot uh, to do it versus so many of the other experiences we have where there's just no way, you know, it's like you can't download your Netflix movie and take it on a, you know, uh, you know, disconnect it or put it on your shelf like you used to with your DVD or uh, uh, movies. Yeah. I can't, like that, can't think right? of the so last you, time anybody burned a DVD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Growing up in the nineties. We used to do it all the time. Yeah. And just pirating too, which has kind of gone the wayside because of streaming. Uh, we had a project, by the way, uh, the CD and DVD project during that period. Uh, it ended, um, I think, in the early 2000s. It was even the middle of 2000s. Uh, but um, we gave away, I don't know, tens of thousands of free CDs and DVDs because uh, it turned out we had some volunteers that were willing to burn these. You know, they'd, we'd generate the master and they'd burn them in their home setup and they were willing to go out and, and put them in the mail as long as we could reimburse them. So it turned out that it was actually really cheap. Uh, with volunteer labor, you know, really cheap to um, to send a physical copy on disc to anywhere in the world. And so we, we did that for a number of years. And part of that, of course, was the internet. Of course, still it's not as good as, it, as we'd like it to be, but the internet then was even less available in many places. You'd have people for whom internet access was, you know, non-existent or, or too slow or, or whatever. And we would send them, you know, 10,000 books. On a, on a disc and say, do with as you will, make copies, put it on your local, you know, load it into the schools, steal this book, server, anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a great medium. I feel like with the internet, it seems like it's here to stay. I feel like ebooks are not going anywhere. So it sounds like Michael had a true vision back in 1971. And in 50 plus years, you've come a long way. Indeed. Yeah. And it's been, a, it's been a great ride and it's been fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, Michael died uh, just about 10 years ago, but by the time he died, he had been proven right. In other words, all of these ideas, you know, all of the notions about ebooks and what they could do and what they were good for were, were demonstrably true. And he had spent essentially his whole adult life trying to make the case for, uh, for ebooks and um, 
uh, and these days, again, we, we don't even question it, you know, so it was, it was fantastic that he was a voice in the wilderness for so long, alone and fighting the good fight, and yet ultimately turned out to be uh, correct and to, to be um, a key person in, in bringing this current reality about. All right. Well, Dr. Newby, I appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I, yeah. I, thank, I, thank you for the time and thank the volunteers for the work that they do. It's a pleasure. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on more new and exciting guests. And also, if you want to throw us a couple bucks, treat our Venmo like a tip jar at the Poor Proles Almanac. We appreciate your support and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. This is Elliot. This is Andy. With the Poor Proles Almanac.